0: Continuing our class on the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, just a brief review of what we've looked at so far. We looked at the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of God's providence and decree. We looked at the doctrine of election. We've looked at uh, the effectual call of the gospel, the depravity of man, man's fall, punishment of his sins, and also justification. Now, in chapter 12, we pick up the doctrine of adoption. Paragraph 1 says, All those that are justified, God vouchsafeth in and for his only Son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God. So just a couple things real briefly here. Primary doctrines first is that Adoption is grounded on justification, and it's in Christ. So those are two important facts. Grounded on justification, and in Christ, or in union with Christ. Um, In some passages, like Ephesians 1, predestination is mentioned as the grounds for our justification. Predestined under the adoption of sons. And in others, it refers to our redemption in Christ Jesus leading unto our adoption as sons. Both are true, but the specifics are we're elect in Christ and we're redeemed in Christ and therefore united to Christ. And then the idea that redemption comes first as the forgiveness of sins, the imputation of righteousness precedes the acceptance into the family of God. So those two things. And then here it's going to list some of the privileges. It says, Have his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, and are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off. But sealed to the day of redemption and inheritance, or excuse me, and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. (coughs) So, a couple more. The second primary doctrine here is that adoption includes unspeakable liberties and privileges. Liberty is a freedom from some constraint or bondage. In this case, the liberty concerns the spirit of adoption being poured into our hearts. We're freed from the servile fear of God, which is where we fear him merely as slaves with anticipation of punishment. But this is what we call a filial fear, a son's fear for his father, reverence for his father, whom he loves and does not fear as one who will avenge all the wrongs against him, but one who has taken him into his fatherly care. does so very different sorts of fear. The wicked fear God in the uh, former sense. They have a slavish fear of God. The godly have a filial fear by which their reverence for God is freed from that bondage and brings them into the status of sons. There are also privileges. And a privilege literally means a private law. Uh, Lege is a law and privy is something that isn't given for everyone. So it's a private law, a privilege. Believers have a law with God that is private, that's not diffused to all mankind. If we believe in universal redemption, we can't believe that Christians have privileges, but we don't believe in that because the scriptures don't teach it. Not all men can cry, Abba Father. Not all men are chastened by God. Not all men are provided for by God in this specific sense. Not all men are protected by God. Not all men are sealed to the day of redemption. Not all men inherit the promises. So these are all privileges given uniquely to those that God has justified in and for His Son adopted. Okay. Uh, You might say, just as contrast... Adoption sees us as inheritors or heirs, whereas justification sees us as righteous men. Now, justification first sees us as sinners, and we need our sins forgiven, and we need to be accepted as righteous in God's sight. But it's more of a legal, specifically legal, related to the law of God. Adoption sees us as those inheriting by testament, adopted into a family, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. So these are unspeakable liberties and privileges. And then the third primary doctrine is that adoption has very practical application. Adoption has very practical application. Especially in our Christian experience. Notice some of the things, some of the glorious teachings of Scripture where throughout the Bible it it gives us a picture of God as reconciled to his people, mainly focusing our attention on the law in the Old Testament and justification. And then in the New Testament, giving us a a very practical application of that redemption that we have in Christ and a knowledge that God has adopted us into his family so that we are no longer slaves but sons. Now, the experience of a believer whether in the sense of being chastened and suffering or in the, the sense of the warmth and delight in God's love for him, both of those are in adoption in the sense of the specifics of them. Because if we're chastened, it's not because God is judging and condemning us to hell, but actually he's using remedial correction. He wants to restore us to his favor. He wants to dis- restore us to obedience to his will. And so the chastening that a Christian experience is not, strictly speaking, a punitive thing, although it is a punishment, but it's not strictly speaking like he's punishing you because you're, you're his enemy. Rather, it's he's restoring you to his favor. He's recalling you to his grace. And so even the sufferings of believers are for their good and for their benefit because they restore that relationship that's breached with the Father. So they're very practical experiences. And then the Abba Father, the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the knowledge that the Spirit helps our prayers and that God delights to hear his children, that we have a sealing unto redemption, that we have an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away. All these things that we rejoice in, those are also part of this doctrine of adoption, So the shortness with which our confession handles this does not mean that it's not important. It just means that there is a tremendous wealth here. And if we wanted to get into it, we could spend years and years talking about all the privileges, all the liberties of the children of God, of the sons of God as they're adopted into his family. Chapter 13 of Sanctification, paragraph 1. They who are effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them, are further sanctified really and personally through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, by his word and spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified, and they more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of true holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Okay, so a couple of things here, primary doctrines. Sanctification is by an internal and an external power. Now, the internal power is manifold. One is the renewal of the image of God, the recreation, regeneration, effectual calling. So that's where God implants a new principle of life in the soul of a sinner. And then there is, through the virtue of Christ's death, God further sanctifying them, working in them to will and to do of his good pleasure. So that's the internal power. It's both God working in us and God recreating and working in that way as well. So kind of a once-for-all which we call definitive and then an ongoing progressive where it grows. So there's the once for all regeneration and renewal in the image of God. And then there's the growing in that image, growing in that likeness of God. And that's the second primary doctrine. There is definitive and progressive sanctification. And then the third primary doctrine is that sanctification is indispensable for glorification. Sanctification is indispensable for glorification. If someone is not definitively sanctified and progressively sanctified, they cannot have any realistic expectation that they will see God. They can have an anticipation of fiery judgment, and that's it. And this is why scripture says these sorts of things, without holiness no man shall see the Lord, is because it's reminding us that those whom God has chosen in eternity past, he will effectually call, and those whom he has effectually called he will justify, and those whom he has justified he will sanctify, and those whom he has sanctified he will glorify. So that if you have one part of the whole, you can be assured that you have all of them. But sanctification is the point at which Scripture demands that if you don't have this, you don't have the rest. Because it's the one thing where you can prove whether you actually have faith before other men. God knows from eternity past who he would grant the gift of faith to. But as far as men are concerned, whether of their own salvation or of their knowledge of other people's salvation... The only true test is sanctification because that's what manifests in the actual day to day life of a person. The practice of true holiness. You can claim all day that you've been justified, you've been elected from eternity, but the test is not was there a point in time I can point back to and I've signed a little card that said, On this day I accepted Jesus into my filthy, rotten heart by the power of my own free will. There's nothing like that in the Bible. There is the question, do you live a holy life? Do you believe the truth that God has said in his word? And do you live according to his commandments? Not in a perfection, but in a growing toward perfection. And if you can't say that you do that, then your claim to faith is vain. Your claim to election is vain. Claim to justification. That's why it says that. It's not that sanctification secures a right to, to glorification. That's not true. The only thing that secures a right to glorification is the work of Christ on the cross and in his obedience to God's commandments. Justification, in other words, secures our legal right to inheritance. Adoption guarantees by the first fruits that God will give us the rest. So he assures us that we'll have the rest by giving us the first part, the earnest of our inheritance. But sanctification is the way by which a believer walks toward the kingdom. So it's not the title to reigning, we would say. It's the way to the kingdom. How do you get to the kingdom? The, the highway of holiness. What will God allow you into his kingdom for? For the work of Christ on my behalf. But if we don't have holiness, we will not see God. That's a fact. Okay, so that's the first paragraph. Second paragraph, this sanctification is throughout in the whole man yet imperfect in this life. There abideth still some remnants of corruption in every part, whence ariseth the continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. Okay, so first primary doctrine here, sanctification is universal, but imperfect in this life. Sanctification is universal, but imperfect. It's throughout the whole man, that's the idea of universal, throughout the whole, every part of the Christian's nature, their body, their mind, their will, their affections. Sanctification is throughout the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. And then the second is this, irreconcilable war carried on in the soul. Peter talks about these fleshly lusts wage war against your soul. And, of course, Romans 7 gives us a detail of Paul's experience with these corruptions that remain in his flesh so that he cannot do the things that he would, as Galatians 5 talks about. So there's this war. And a couple of terms here, one is uh, mortification of sin, you might hear or read about that, that means where Paul says put to death therefore your members which are on the earth, and then he gives a list of ungodly ways of living, unrighteous ways of living mortify means to put something to death, and it's the same thanatute in Greek means to cause something to come to a state of death, where it's alive now, make it die is the idea. So, put to death. phonatos is death. Phanatuo is to put to death. Put your sins to death. So that's one. And then the other hand, there's this word vivification. Put on the new man. Bring to life the virtues and the graces that God has given you. Bring them more and more to life. Kill off sin more and more. And that's what this fleshly and spiritual battle is. It's not a battle of your body against your spirit. It's a battle of the sanctified man in all of his parts, since sanctification is throughout the whole man, and the remnants of corruption that stay in your body, your mind, and your will, and your affections. So it's the, the pagans tend to look, and the, especially the Platonists, tend to look at man as body and spirit, and the good part of man is his spirit, and the bad part of man is his body. The Bible looks at man as body and spirit, and both are corrupt and fallen in Adam. Both are redeemed and renewed in Christ, yet imperfectly in this life. So that there's this warfare that goes on in the body, as well as in the spirit, in the will, as well as in the mind, as well as in the affection. So in all parts of man, there's this irreconcilable warfare that happens where the new man is fighting to put off and kill the old man, and the old man says, no, I want to kill you. I want to put you off. I want you to die. And so it's a war. All right. And then paragraph 3 of chapter 13, in which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, The regenerate part doth overcome, and so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Okay, so Paul describes again in Romans 7 his experience of wrestling with his remaining corruption, and it's very clear that in a godly man like that, who is exemplary in many ways, he still falls under the power of sin for a time. And this is what it's talking about. There may be so much corruption remaining in us that it may prevail over us. And often this is when we're the least watchful. Actually, when we think we're doing really well. That's when God's like, oh, you're doing pretty well. I see. So now you rely on your own strength. And then God gives us over to our own strength. And then we find out how little and useless our own strength really is. But be that as it may, this is an ongoing part of the war. Is a, if you think of it, one battle versus the progress of a war, what this paragraph is saying, the corruption that remains will win battles, but will not win the war. Mm. It will overcome on occasions and on a, you might call micro level, a small level, but on the macro level, the progress of the whole war, God is winning and He will win and He has won. And that's because of the continual supply of strength that God provides by His Holy Spirit. So, primary doctrine here, just one here. Though there are setbacks, yet the Spirit of Christ wins the war. So, though there are setbacks, yet the Spirit of Christ wins the war. All right, Casey, any questions on 12 or 13? No. Okay. Chapter 14 of saving faith. Paragraph 1. The grace of faith, whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls, is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts, and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the word, by which also and by the administration of the sacraments in prayer it is increased and strengthened. Okay, so the first primary doctrine here is that faith is given to the elect and wrought by the Spirit. Faith is given to the elect and is wrought by the Spirit. Now, of course, we looked at this in Ephesians 1 as well as especially Ephesians 2, where we looked at how faith is the gift of God, how it is freely given to you not only to believe in Christ but also to to continually suffer for his name. So God gives that freely. It's not earned. It's not inherent in us. It's a gift, something given to us by God. And again, I've talked about this previously, but our confession reflecting the teaching of Scripture is very consistent with itself. So election, we're predestined unto faith. That's one of the gifts by the almighty power that's at work toward us in Ephesians 1, Is the working of God's Spirit in giving us and engendering faith, much like in Ezekiel's vision when you have the valley of dry bones, and there's a speaking and a progress from his mouth of the Holy Spirit that causes them to have flesh, and then there is a putting on uh, or putting in them of a spirit of life, so they go from being dead in trespasses and sins to alive unto God. And that's through the Spirit of God working in them. That's an analogy or a type of regeneration in faith. Dead men don't believe anything. They have to be raised to spiritual life before they can believe. Okay, and John 1 is one of the passages that talks about this. It says that he gave them right to become the children of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born. So it's pointing back before their faith. Which were born, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God having been begotten. So God begets them anew, and then they believe. So it's part of God's gift. So election leading to effectual calling, regeneration, and then faith wrought by the Spirit. And then the second primary doctrine. Faith is ordinarily engendered by the ministry of the Word. Faith is ordinarily engendered by the ministry of the word. Um, So it's begotten or it's created, you might say, in God's ordinary means of the ministry of the word. That is the preaching specifically of God's word. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10. That's the ordinary means by which God begets faith. And then the ministry of the word strengthens that faith, but not alone. There are other means that God uses, namely the sacraments and prayer. So baptism is a strengthening of our faith. It's a sign and seal of our faith. It gives us an assurance that God has washed us, not just in our bodies, but in the answer of a good conscience. That's how baptism saves us. So there's an ongoing confirming to us that God loves us and that God has given us faith and therefore all of his promises are reliable. That happens in baptism and also in the Lord's table. That when we come and partake in the sacrament of faith, that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he was crucified for our sins, that he spilled his blood to wash us from all of our iniquities, that's a confirming of our faith. It's not merely we go through some motion and it's, we just do it to remember and maybe it means something, maybe it doesn't. God actually promises that in the means of grace, he will feed us on the Lord Jesus Christ. He will strengthen our faith and that as we come, we come believing in his promises and our faith is increased. So faith is engendered merely by the preaching of the word, the ministry of God's word, but it's increased also by sacraments and also by prayer. And we looked at this with fasting, that fasting increases faith because it decreases, the goal of God is that it would decrease our dependence on creatures. And the more we depend on creatures, the less we rely on God. The less we rely on creatures, the more we rely on God. So prayer does that as well. Now, it's not listing all the means of grace here. It's just giving us the principal ones. Ministry of the Word, sacraments, and prayer. These are the primary means by which God increases faith in us, having already begotten it or engendered it in the ministry of the Word. So, that's our third primary doctrine, is that faith is strengthened by word, sacraments, and prayer. Okay, paragraph two. By this faith, a Christian believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word for the authority of God himself speaking therein. So let's just stop there and deal with the primary doctrine because this divides itself up pretty nicely. First is there is a general faith that trusts all of scripture Because God speaks in it. That's the first primary doctrine. There is a general faith that trusts all scripture because God speaks in it. Now we saw this in chapter 1 that God is the author of scripture. Not Paul, not Isaiah, not Moses. God is. And the reason why we believe in the scriptures generally speaking with this general faith is because God has spoken. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Paul talked about this when he was on trial in Acts 24. He said that he believes everything that the prophets had spoken. That was his confidence. He believed every word of God through the law and the prophets. So that is a general faith. God speaking in the Bible Therefore, I listen to everything it says. All right, then, let's go on and read there. After speaking of God himself speaking in the Bible, and, that is this faith, and acteth differently upon that that which each particular passage thereof containeth, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promise of God for this life, and that which is to come. Okay, so this is our second primary doctrine, is that faith acts differently in response to what God says in Scripture. So faith acts differently in response to what God says in Scripture. Now, one thing here is that if we say that faith is just the assent to the gospel, which it is in terms of justification, it merely says, I, I agree and I embrace this and this is true. But if we say it only does that in the life of a believer, we would be mistaken. Faith worketh, the Bible tells us, by love. And that is, what is love? It's yielding obedience to the commandments of God. Love is the fulfilling of the law. The obedience of faith. So Paul talks about that in Romans 16. He talks about the commandment of the everlasting God unto the obedience of faith. Faith obeys. That's not how it justifies us. That's not the means by which we're justified. But faith certainly does that. It moves us to listen to everything God has said in the Bible, including his commands. And when it hears him speak those commands, it believes that that command applies to me. Faith does the conclusion that the Bible doesn't provide. The Bible says, Thou shalt not steal. The Bible doesn't say, Casey Fargo shall not steal. Nowhere will you find that in the Bible. But you could reason it this way. God says, Thou shalt not steal. And in it, He addresses all men because it's a moral law. I am a man... Therefore, I shall not steal. You see, you have to do good and necessary consequences to make any sense of the Bible at all. Because the Bible doesn't address you. It addresses the ancient Israelites. That's the primary audience. And so you can say, well, it doesn't apply to me. That would be irrational. Of course it applies to you. Are you a man? Well, is he commanding men? Then you fall under the category and you must obey. Same thing with the gospel. When he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, he's talking to the Philippian jailer, and thy house. Well, he's not talking to me. Well, yes, he is. Because he's addressing you as a sinner fallen. Are you a sinner who's fallen? Okay, well then, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Faith takes and makes the consequence for my particular circumstance based off of the truth revealed in the Bible. But it acts differently. If God issues a command, faith says, I will obey. If God threatens and says, I will destroy you, then faith says, I will tremble at the word of God. That's what Isaiah said, God speaking through him, he says, this is the one I'll look to who trembles at my word. So God's word threatens, we tremble. And then if God makes a promise, I will do this good thing. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. Those are two promises, your salvation and your household salvation. Did he make a promise? Faith believes it. So every part of Scripture will have different aspects by which the faith of God's elect says, Amen. I agree. In fact, the verb for believing in the Old Testament is amening, To say Amen to a thing. To accept it as true. And to say, yes, I assent. This is true. But you can't say, I assent to thou shalt not commit adultery if you go and commit adultery and say, that law doesn't apply to me. That's not believing. That's unbelieving. And so it yields obedience. All right, then let's finish up the last part of paragraph two. But the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. And so that leads us to our third primary doctrine, that the principal acts of saving faith relate to Christ and his benefits. Principal acts of saving faith relate to Christ and his benefits. And we've looked at this, the benefits, especially in the shorter catechism, there are benefits that God gives all who are united to Christ. So here faith is seen in its principal work. What is the first thing, the main point, that Faith comes to, well, it comes to this. Not a general acceptance of everything the Bible says. That's the general faith. This is the specific faith of the gospel. This is the specific faith of a Christian. I believe in Christ, and in Christ I have all these benefits. God offers me all these benefits in his Son. Would you have your sins forgiven? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Would you have everlasting inheritance, adoption into God's family? Well, God says, This is my only son, my firstborn. He inherits all. Do you want to be a joint heir with Christ? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what faith says. The principal acts justification, sanctification, and eternal life. I believe in Christ and I receive those benefits in him. Now, those are the principal acts of saving faith. So that's a specific faith of the gospel. And then paragraph three, this faith is different in degrees, weak or strong, may be often and many ways assailed and weakened, but gets the victory, growing up in many to the attainment of a full assurance through Christ, who is both the author and finisher of our faith. So the first primary doctrine here is that faith admits of degrees both over time and among individuals. Faith admits of degrees over time and among individuals. Now, of course, um, there's a difference between our faith and the object of our faith. And sometimes the Bible uses those interchangeably, but it's a literary device, not a plain statement. Um, When we talk about the object of our faith, God is perfect. His ways are perfect. The justification that we have by faith is perfect. There isn't anything that could be added to it. It's perfectly just. All of our sins are covered, etc. So in the object of our faith, there is no lack. But in the subject of faith, that is, the one doing the believing, which is us. We believe. We do not have a perfect faith. So Christ talks to his disciples and says, O ye of little faith. They weren't the strongest believers. There's a request in the Gospels. Lord, I believe. The man is asked whether he has faith to believe whether Christ can do what he's requesting. The man says, "I believe, but help thou mine unbelief. I have a twofold kind of like we were talking about in sanctification. I have a twofold nature. I want to believe, but I find that I don't. so help my unbelief, that is, strengthen my faith so that it mortifies and crushes and pushes out my unbelief okay, so that 's what it means there, and this is true also among people there. Abraham was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Sarah, she laughs. Oh, that can't happen. And so she's rebuked and Abraham is commended because one has stronger faith and one has weaker faith. So among individuals, you might have some stronger and some weaker. And among a person, it might that person is strong in faith at one point and fails later. Peter comes and confesses Christ. And then a minute later, he's saying why Jesus shouldn't be crucified and he has to be rebuked as Satan to get behind Jesus since he savors the things of men. Well, wasn't he just, Jesus just commending his faith as granted to him by the Father to believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Yes. So at the within about, I don't know, 10 minutes, he goes from commending his faith to condemning his unbelief because over time, our faith can be assailed and weakened. But in the end, what happens to Peter? Faith gets the victory, and that's what it says. So there may be degrees over time and among different people, but that brings us to our second. Faith is finally victorious in all who have it. This is the victory, John says, that overcometh the world, even our faith. The shield of faith, we may quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. It will gain the victory. And we read about this in Luke 22. Jesus told his uh, apostle Peter that he had prayed for his faith, that it would not fail. So the mediation and priesthood of Christ is the means by which our faith is sustained. Not only that, also the working of the Holy Spirit, also the seed of the Father that abides within us. But that's one of the means God uses to sustain our faith is the mediation and prayers of Jesus Christ himself. Mm. So it will finally gain the victory. If we were to believe that a man could truly believe in Christ and then truly fall away, what we would say is, what we would be forced to say, is that the seed of the Father fails, the ministry of the Spirit is not enough, and the mediation of Christ is insufficient. That it takes something in the creature beyond the almighty power of the the triune God described in the scriptures, by which faith is engendered, by which it is preserved, by which it is perfected, all ascribed to God and his power. We'd have to say God decided that he couldn't accomplish what he purposed to do, which is utterly ridiculous. It leads to atheism. It opens the door to Satan to say, ah, that's exactly what I want people to think about God. He can't do what he wants. I can do what I want. I can overcome with my purposes. He can't accomplish his. That's exactly the devil's way of thinking. But we know that Scripture is very clear on this point. Faith is finally victorious in all who truly believe. Are there people who say they have faith who don't? Yeah, of course. It's called hypocrisy. But in all who truly believe that the Spirit of God actually gave them the gift of faith, that God predestinated them unto faith, they will believe and they will persevere. And then finally, the third primary doctrine is that assurance of faith is a valid goal through Christ. Assurance of faith is a valid goal through Christ. So this brings up a point just to mention that some make assurance of, of faith of the essence of faith itself. So being assured that you have faith is essential to being a believer. That's not correct. Uh, the Bible does not teach that because that is confusing the subject with the object. The object of our faith is perfect The subjects who believe are not. And therefore, our faith may be assaulted or assailed or weakened. We can become those of little faith. We can act like we're an unbeliever. We can be like Satan. So, like I said, Peter, one minute he's commending his faith as granted to him by divine revelation. The next minute he calls him Satan. Okay, so which is it? Is he divinely inspired in, in his faith or is he Satan? yes, both both are true so not everyone will have the knowledge of their own salvation not everyone will have the knowledge of their own faith some, as it says will attain to a full assurance of faith and this is in the use of ordinary means so there are a couple errors one is the one I mentioned that well you can't really believe unless you're assured that you believe. That would be to believe in your believing. We don't believe in our faith. We believe in Christ. So having an assurance of faith doesn't mean that... Doesn't mean that you could be a hypocrite who has assurance of faith and you don't actually have it. And you could be a weak believer who does not have assurance of faith and does have true saving faith. Because it's the object of your faith that saves. And then, on the other hand, there is an anathema that the Antichrist issues against anyone who would say that he can have saving faith. He says you're going to hell if you believe that you can be assured of your salvation and of your faith without a direct voice from God speaking to you and saying, you have faith. This is the Church of Rome. They don't believe in the assurance of faith, obviously because they don't believe in a complete redemption. So if you don't believe that Christ is a full savior, you're going to have this kind of encouragement for men to be doubting. You're going to encourage men to think, well, my sins aren't actually forgiven because based off of that system, that's true. Like Paul said, ye who are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. If your doctrine of justification is true, you don't have grace at all. As Augustine said, Grace must be grace in all matters or it is grace in none. It has to be universally solely by grace or it's not by grace at all. Grace is no more grace and work is no more work. As the Apostle Paul says, they have to go together. And the same could be said in the assurance of, of faith. If you're going to anathematize and curse people for saying they can have assurance of salvation, in the use of the ordinary means of grace, word sacraments, prayer, they they can attain and should strive to attain assurance of faith in those ordinary means. That's our doctrine and that is condemned as leading to licentiousness. Like, oh well you're saying that where sin abounds grace much more abounds. You're going to lead men to continue in sin so that grace may abound. That's what you're going to say. And oddly enough it's the same argument against the Apostle Paul. So we ought not to somehow glorify the state of doubt and say, well, you shouldn't really believe that you are actually a believer. No, in the use of ordinary means, you can assure yourself, I have the grace of faith. And it's not to believe in your believing, but it's recognizing, no, God has worked in me and he continues to work in me and he has forgiven my sins Mm -hmm. And he does receive me graciously through Christ. And he has adopted me into his household. And he does promise me inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away. We'll see this in Ephesians 3. Paul actually prays for the Ephesians as an example for us in our prayers that they would attain to the full assurance of understanding in the knowledge of the Son of God. That's one of the things that he prays for them. He bows his knee to the Father because he wants them to have a full assurance of understanding. What I think is actually true and what this gospel says applies to me, I know I have. That's what he wants. So they can be filled, he says, with all the fullness of God. Now that doesn't mean like Christ has the fullness of the Godhead bodily in him, but it means the fullness of God is like a fullness that comes from God. It's like the chariots of God. They are the most excellent chariots that exist. The cedars of God are the most excellent trees. The cedars that are so large and massive and tall, those are the cedars of God. Wrestlings of God, the Old Testament uses this phrase for the greatest of all wrestlings where you come off victorious. All these phrases. The fullness of God is that fullness of the knowledge of God that He gives to His people, that excellency of knowledge by which they arrive at a full, mature understanding and also an assurance of their faith in Christ. That's something we should pray for one another. That's something we should pray for all of God's people, but especially those that you have a relationship with as believers, whether locally or presbyterially or in our state or nationality, whatever. Those that we have primary concern, as Paul did for the Ephesians, he prayed, that they would have the full assurance of their faith. And also, Peter talks about this, just to relate back to sanctification. When he talks about developing Christian character, faith is one of the links in there. Add to your faith, what? Virtue. And to your virtue, knowledge. And to your knowledge, brotherly love. And to your brotherly love, I don't remember. But he adds a whole list of things. And then at the end, he says, for in so doing, you'll have ministered unto you an entrance abundantly into the kingdom of God. So your assurance of faith and the ease with which you make it into heaven will be proportional to the degree of striving and diligence you give in developing your faith into the other graces that flow out of it. The love of the, uh, brethren, the diligence and virtue in cultivating a godly life. All those things work together in order to strengthen our faith and he actually uses the word like when you buy something and you get a pink slip in the ancient world, they would give a written receipt that would certify you that you had purchased something. That's what he says you're striving for in striving for holiness and sanctification is to get the pink slip of your faith, of your justification. You can be assured, here it is, God gave me the receipt because your life is the receipt. You see the working of God in your life as you develop faith, virtue, brotherly love, kindness, etc. All right, any questions about chapter 14? Okay, let's close our time together in prayer.